Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a hat-trick podcast. Oh, off life. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time, and I'm so thrilled today that my guest is none other than presenter and broadcaster, although, to be perfectly honest, I think there are quite a few things missing from that description and they're all good Lorraine Lorraine Kelly thank you so much for giving up your time to this Lorraine I I hope you had a nice time with your book again what did you choose tell us about it I did well I chose probably quite an interesting one Claudine at St Clair's and this was actually not the first St Clair's book but it was the first one I got because I used to love the local library where I lived in East End of Glasgow it was my re-escape and Claudine at St Clair's was the first one, but it's not that, like I said, it's not the first one of the series, but then I went back and read them all. Oh, did you? Yeah, I had to. I got so engrossed in the story. Did you ever own a copy of them or did, were they all library books? They were all library books until probably, I think when I was about 11. Um, that was when I started getting books as presents. I used to ask for books as presents because I was such a bookworm. I was always reading. I still am. I still always got a book in my bag. It's one of the great joys in life. Best thing my mum and dad ever did for me was before I went to uh, primary school, they taught me to read and write. So I was only probably about four and a half. You know, I mean, I wasn't reading War and Peace or anything, but I was still able to read and write. And it was a huge advantage. The best, like I say, the best present they could ever have given me. It was wonderful. Have you read War and Peace since? Oh, absolutely. I did. (laughs) Weirdly, I did Russian at school. I didn't read it in the original Russian. That would be far too up my bottom. But um, I did did read it when I was a kid and then reread it again. And uh, yeah, it was brilliant. Brilliant book. And where did you go? Did you have a place where you would squirrel your book away or did you just read wherever you were? Did you well, have a it's strange. Place? I mean, looking back on it, I actually read a lot at the library. I would go to the library just for some quiet because when I was a very, very little girl, we would just all we stayed in the one room in the Gorbals. And then we moved to uh, Bridgeton in the east end of Glasgow. And there was only one bedroom and the living room. And I never really thought about that. It's only now that I think back, like, we were all in the same bedroom. You know, me and my brother and my mum, my poor mum and dad, poor mum and dad. But yeah, there, was, there wasn't really anywhere to go that was quiet. So I ended up going to the library to read. And that was my, oh, that was my haven. I absolutely loved it. I loved it. I just felt very safe. And the librarian was fantastic. He was always recommending things to. She recommended me the, the Just William books as well. <laughs> and all of that. So it was great. We'll touch on the whole notion of Enid Blyton, good or bad, later. Yeah. But 
Was there any disapproval when you were reading her books? Not then. Not then. And we weren't aware of it. I mean, when you read it now and you read it, read it now, not so much the, the St. Clair's books, to be, to be fair. There, there are some things in there that sort of make you wince uh, a bit. But for me, uh, the, the St. Clair's thing when I came across it was total escapism. First of all, I was a bit bemused. I thought it was like a punishment that girls were sent to school away from their mum and dad. I just thought that was like really weird. And so with my own experience, I couldn't understand it. Obviously, there were the great things like midnight feasts, you know, with with, the sardine paste, which I had no idea what that was. (laughs) And ginger beer, I did have a rough idea what that was. But it was just such an alien world to me. And I think that was what was so captivating. And also, you can recognise it very, you know, that I mean, you can see that they're all stereotypes, these, you know, the French girl that doesn't like going to play and she doesn't like games and she cheats and, you know, she's a little bit sort of not quite the thing. Um, and what it screams at, you know, is class. It just, doesn't it? I mean, it's astonishing. The big themes in this. Oh, enormous. Class, money and yes, looks. absolutely. But to be fair to Enid Blyton, um, and we know all of the problems, but to be fair to her, while the girls, the, the, the girls that are there are sort of like, you know, upper class or, I, I don't know, if you, yeah, I would say they're probably upper class. Um, they're quite kind. You know, they are quite kind. And what they say is there's a code. You know, she talks a lot about the code. But they're not horrible to the girls that are heaven, you know, heaven for friend, that are working class. <laughs> She's not, you know, our characters aren't particularly horrible to them, apart from the, the one who nobody likes anyway, who's a snob. Um, they're a bit patronising towards the working class girls, but they're not, they're not evil. They're not horrible. And I think what I, certainly what I took away from it as a kid was that we're all the same. You know, it doesn't really matter how much money you've got. It doesn't really matter how pretty you are and, you know, what your clothes are like, what your parents are like almost, although that does come into it a lot. It's more about, and I like that. I like that sense of it's what you are as a person. So it sort of gets there in the end, but you have to wade through quite a lot of snobbery. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that we're we're straight into talking about the characters in the book because... Um, I like to say to people with their favourite book, you know, can you describe the plot? And I think I'd be putting you on the spot with this one. It's a bit, plot isn't really the word, is it? There are events, but there's not really a strong through line. No, there's no. It's a series of events. You're absolutely right. It's, um, you know, two new pupils come come in, which is always difficult for anybody being the new girl, whether it's coming into a school or a workplace or whatever. So that I found quite interesting. Um, always myself, always feeling a little bit of an outsider. So um, I quite identified, not so much with the French girl, but I did identify with the new characters and it's just how they sort of find their way in the school. You know, Claudine is there because her uh, aunt is the French teacher, Mamzelle, who doesn't get a name, she's just Mamzelle, <laughs> who talks in a very odd way and they're all sort of slightly patting on the head. You know, she's like the figure of fun. What she does brilliantly on the first page almost, is send you right into that classroom with those girls and in a few deft strokes tells you who they are, who they are to each other and what might happen next. And it's it's the most impressive scene setting, even it before is. the new girls arrive. It, absolutely. You're right there in that class and I think that's what grabbed me and because, like I say, it was such an alien world that I didn't understand and yet, just by reading the first couple of pages, you're there. Um, but even as a kid, I did recognise that there were things that were off. 
you know, the snobbishness and the and the classism and all the rest of it and characters that were so stereotypical. Now, I know it, it's a book aimed at young people, but really, you know, <laughs> really like Angela, the beautiful princess, who's one of the new girls who comes in and she's got the worst mother in the world, who's a terrible old snob and absolutely ghastly. And, and she was just a little bit too much. I mean, k- kids aren't really like that. But the one thing kids are like is... There's the queen bee of the class. And she initially is that until all the girls discover that she's just, you know, a hollow snob. But the little girl that becomes Alison, that becomes her acolyte, really, her slave. And you saw that. I mean, we had that at school. Everybody wanted to be Kim Cranston's friend. They did. And she she wasn't anything like Angela. She was a lovely girl. But there was just something about her that everybody wanted to be her pal. And we all sort of fought one another to sit beside her and hold her hand. You're obviously somebody absolutely fascinated by that notion and spending time that, you know, is your own and precious. And yet, and yet, Lorraine, you, you didn't go to university to indulge No, this. no, I didn't. And I, I didn't. I mean, I would have loved to. I, I was supposed to. I was supposed to go and do English and Russian. And then I got a job in the local newspaper. And I did have to, I mean, I always wanted to, to be a, a journalist. That was my thing that I wanted to do. And it was brilliant to have you know, the opportunity to do that, you know, to get that job as a, as a wee cub reporter in the East Cobride News. What a great start that was. Mum and Dad were a bit disappointed because I would have been the first one in the family to go to university and they would have got, you know, the photograph in working class houses, the picture with a funny hat and the scroll. Oh, that! but luckily my baby brother, who's a genius, he went, so it was fine. It was all right in the end. But yeah, but I kind of, um, like, I think an awful lot of the, of working class people back then, uh, self-taught, read everything. And then my job, you know, Janet, every day you're, you're learning something. One of the joys of my job is I get to read people's books that they've written. I mean, sometimes some are better than others, but it's a, it's a great thing to do or to go and see the movie before it's out or go and see their play or, or, or whatever it may be. Um, and that's a joy. You know, I love that. I, I learn something new absolutely every single day. And I'm probably, some might say nosy, but I would say curious. That's what I would say. <laughs> I would say curious. And going back to the book very enjoyably, I was instantly struck by the names too, because my my own name is is a real solid old fashioned name. You are not gonna look in a pram now and have somebody say, Yes, this is little Janet. And the whole book is peppered with those names which have so gone out of fashion. They you know, have. We, we've raided the Victorian and Edwardian servants' quarters, but we haven't quite got to the 40s and 50s names no, yet. No, we haven't. Like Roberta. I don't think there's many Robertas around like right now. That was interesting. And then Angela, because they call her the angel, you know, that was very, that was a bit, that was a bit much, wasn't it? And Claudine, of course, had to be and the, Pauline the French girl. And Pauline and Eileen. Yeah, and there is a, there is a Janet, and, and disconcertingly, their form teacher is Miss Ellis. This so is the names very Janet true. and Miss Ellis appear on the same page. Do you think maybe I was that, that was the message that I was getting? <laughs> <laughs> it probably was. Miss Ellis is quite nice. She's good. Now, I'll tell you what shocked me um, more than halfway through this book um, is that these girls are 16. Do you know? Uh, yes. One of yes. them says, you know, my brother is two years older than me. He's 18. And I, I almost gasped aloud. Me too. The style and the writing and the preoccupations and the attitudes of these girls is, I don't know, conservatively 13, I would say. Absolutely. I mean, they're not sophisticated in any way whatsoever. Reading it again, reading it now, reading it back, that really shocked me too. I couldn't believe 
I was like, because you know what 16 year old kids are like now? For goodness sake, my mum had me when she was 17. So, you know, this is really weird. But again, as a kid, I didn't really clock that. I didn't really notice that so much as, as I did as I did now, you know, looking at back. But you're absolutely right. It makes no sense. Uh, no, the cover of the book we have, um, you know, the, the girl's front and centre, Claudine, has a rather stylish, modish bob. She does. She looks like Louise Brooks. And behind mm. her, some girls who look very kind of hip. And then yes. slightly to her left is a lad, a long-haired, almost it's like denim, possibly leatherish jacket. He looks like a bad lot. He does, but the boys in the book are so much ciphers. I mean, there's a brother, and he's literally a shadowy figure for all oh, sorts yeah, of reasons. Oh, he's just he a brother. He's out of sight. Yeah. Yeah. There's the boy who delivers the fish, mm. <laughs> who they all look down on. Oh, and then there's he's a horny Angela's... Working yes, exactly. <laughs> and then there's Angela, you know, Angela, the, the gorgeous blonde. Her father, who towards the end of the book is is a good and solid, if absolute, mm. presence. Mm. But there's no other blokes at all. And I don't know about you at 16, Rain, but that's kind of all I was mainly thinking about. Well, I was a very slow developer, which is probably why I quite liked uh, the Sinclair's and Mallory Towers thing. But you're right. You're absolutely right. There was nothing. It was all about sort of like um, having passions on one another you know it was it was more about the relationships with the the girls not in any way sexual at all you know there's nothing like that that they were saying certainly um although roberta or bobby as she was called and um, she was a wee bit like the famous five one you know that's quite quite interesting um but there wasn't anything like that but yeah there was just men were kind of they weren't really there and you're right about the dad in the end the dad wanted Angela to go to the school because he wanted the corners knocked off her. I mean, I've never heard of that phrase for a hundred years. That was the thing about some of the phrases. I mean, I barely laughed at some of them. They're absolutely oh, ridiculous. I, I wrote so many down. Well, to go oh. back to Bobby, Bobby yes. very early on in the book, I mean, page six, Bobby is described as very like a boy in her ways, full of fun and tricks, and not being at all lovely herself, always admired beauty in others. That's page seven, yes, and that is. is a recurring theme. Yes. How the the plain look up to the beautiful all yes. the time. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, they call they call um, Angela pale golden hair, bobbed like angels in pictures, and a pointed face like a pixie, and a voice like a princess. And you can imagine the voice like a princess would not be the way I speak. The voice like a princess would be absolutely upper class crystal you know sometimes people of that class to me always sound as if they're shouting into a gale <laughs> and it, it all feel feel like this and um, so yeah that's her idea I guess that's seen as Blanton's idea of perfection that's because they're at opposite ends of the hunting field or whatever that would be at opposite ends of the very very big table <laughs> so to, darling pass the salt we'll draw yeah, and, and, and Angela this this proved to be terrible but you know absolutely gorgeous to look at girl even her school uniform has yes. been tailored it has. So that it looks, it's, it's the same as everybody else's, but it looks beautiful. But, yes, because she's had it all made to measure and, and fitted. And I love the way that she carries around three tennis rackets, not one tennis racket, not two, but three, whether she needs them or not. <laughs> and let me offer you up, up for your edification, Carlotta. Carlotta, Carlotta is the, the exotic circus Carlotta. girl <laughs> who amused the others by turning cartwheels or going completely mad in a foreign Spanish way. I mean, I'm laughing, but that really is desperate. They they had a little go a while back to to kind of bring these up to to the modern time, and you know they they swapped uh, saying 
you know, bathing for swimming and that kind of thing. And actually, like you, when I read these books, I mean, I, I was actually Mallory Towers more, more than St. Clair's. But I, I cannot remember reading them with any sense of judgment at all, except the judgments that the girls themselves are encouraged to make, which yes. are to do with honour and mm-hmm. fairness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they, they talk about slapping each other quite a lot, which I think will probably be edited out in an updated version. But, <laughs> but they're not, as you say, they're not mean to each no, other. No, they're not unless, bad girls. Unless the meanness is a sort of blatant meanness, but it has a purpose, you know, stealing money because you need something, yes. as, as Eileen does, or, mm. you know, hiding because you need to go and, and visit your brother who's unfortunately lost his job and needs money. But yeah. but so much of, of Enid Blyton, I think, must come. And given that she wrote at one point 50 books a year. A How? Year. How did this she is do like, This is like automatic writing, isn't it? Yeah. Some of yeah. it. And I oh, think... Yeah. In a way, that's why it's so delicious, because she's not stopping to edit herself, you know. And I don't know about you, but when I'm writing, I go back over things. Absolutely. And, but I'm not go at that. But I don't think she did. Mm. And also it meant that she could add in little things that occurred to her at the time, whether or not they were relevant. I mean, there's a brilliant bit with Claudine, the French girl, who, uh, when it comes up to half term, which, which is a huge event. Oh, big deal, big, huge event. Yeah. And I noticed actually last day... <laughs> <laughs> when they're all picked up by their parents, the parents watch, you know, poor things. They're all playing tennis or whatever. And then they take them out for an obligatory meal and then de- deliver them back. But Claudine, being French, her, her family are in France. She can't, she can't therefore reunite with her family. But Enid Blyton says, she'd, um, because she was one of a large family, she'd only got a small share of the parents' love and attention and had not missed them much at all. Yes. You know, then she moves on, of course. That's not plot. That's nothing. It's just something... But Enid Blyton, I think, was thinking at the time. Yeah, and just put it in, and it doesn't advance yeah. anything. It doesn't do anything. And I just <laughs> yeah. rather, and it's rather sad. It you know, and and it's and the thing is about these sweeping generalisations that she yeah. made. I mean, you mentioned Carlotta, who I I wanted to be Carlotta. I thought she was fantastic. She could do things like I could, I've never been able to do a cartwheel in my life. I don't know I'd be in the hospital if I did a cartwheel. Yeah. But I just thought so she, with several other people. I, know, if I, did it. <laughs> I thought she was. I thought she was brilliant. I don't know what you were supposed to think of her, but I find the adjectives around about her quite disturbing. You wouldn't get away with that now, not not really, not especially like later when you actually read her story. Um, yes. You know, in one of the previous books, uh, that that does sound um, alarm bells quite loudly. Well, people have actually died in her family. <laughs> I know it is to make it yeah. possible for her to attend the school. Indeed, so, yes, yes. But again, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that none of this jeopardy actually makes anyone deeply unhappy. You know, no. she can, Enid Blyton can mention as an aside that somebody has lost a parent, mm. but you are then swept up into the fact that they're all going to have stink balls in the classroom. Oh, see, that that was a strange one, wasn't it? When I was reading that, I just didn't get that. I, I thought to myself, we would have got absolutely killed if we'd done that in school. Also, they were in little glass canisters yes. mm. that you were required to break with your thumb. Mm-hmm. Hazard? That's a bit of a just, I, It was just like... What is going on here? Because, you know, at school, if you were out of line at my school, you got the belt. You know, I was always getting the belt for talking and it was horrible. It was really, really painful. You'd be left with hands numb. And there didn't seem to be any, there didn't seem to be any sort of, you know, I suppose consequences of their bad behaviour. They just sort of got into trouble a little bit. You know, even the ones that were doing really bad things, you know, the head teacher was just so sort of magnanimous. It was like, it was like, well, if you stick to the code, if you stick to the code of the school, you'll be fine. But if you don't stick to the code, that's it, you're scrubbed. 
and um, that they had this sort of quite weird code of conduct, which was quite bizarre. I mean, some of it you get, some of it you understand. You know, it's about being kind, and that resonates now. And um, you know, it's 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 about not being judgmental, that resonates now. But also the thing, and the interesting thing with Eileen, because her mum was the new matron, and she was a clipe, as we would say in Scotland, a telltale. You know, she was a telltale, and that was like genius. That was like the worst thing. You know, you, you could do terrible things. You know, you could run out of school, you could steal, you could do all these things. But if you told on someone, that was absolutely terrible. And her mum, which I found really interesting rereading it and reading it at the time, what really struck me about her mum, who was this kind of, you know, the, the other matron was big and fat and, and, and lovely and cosy and comfy, like a big cottage loaf. And she was this kind of mean, you know, thin, sort of like horrible acerbic person. But that was the first time I'd really read something where adults were horrid. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And adults where I actually could see me not obeying her because she wasn't nice. And she was mean when I and her daughter would tell her that somebody was doing something naughty. She would then make holes in their stockings so that they had to darn them. I mean, that's just, that's just mean. It's <laughs> just really, really mean-spirited and, and adult in a position of power, you know, that, that found... I like the headmistress, though. She, she's all right. Yes. I liked her. I liked her a I lot. Think, I think Edith okay. Black really liked her. And yeah, as a former fair. teacher, I'm sure she invested in her all mm. those fair and fine qualities yeah. that she felt people were capable of. Absolutely. Do you think Enid Blyton identified herself with that headmistress? Because I think that. I think she was all those qualities that probably Enid Blyton would like to have. Yes. She put them into the headmistress. Well, here we have our psychologist hats on, don't we? Because (laughs) Enid Blyton obviously wrote very, very happily and easily Mm. as a 13-year-old girl. As a 13-year-old. Like I say, the girls in this book, and I I don't know about you, but I read Mallory Towers when I was probably 11 and 12. Mm, I was 10 or 11, yeah. Not at 16. But, you know, in her own life, her father, who she adored, walked out on them when she was 13. So it is that classic thing of your default becomes the last time you felt secure and you right. then act on it. And that makes so. I think sense. for most yeah. of it, she is all the girls. She's mm. all the girls. Mm-hmm. But yes, with with the headmistress, I think for a moment she can she can see it how you how you could be to children. Yeah, Enid yeah. Blyton's own children don't don't particularly the younger one don't speak well of her. And it's really interesting with the, with the, the matron that she has two children. She has Eileen and mm. and Eddie. Nobody else has called things like that either. So obviously the names are important. And Eddie uh, was supposed to be an electrician and he's lost his job. So Eileen is stealing from her mother, the matron, to give to her brother. And when this is discovered at the end, and all the way through the matron has said, you know, whoever is stealing from me, they will have to be expelled. Absolutely. Yes. And of yes, course yes. discovers it's her daughter. And then she says, what have I done to have the punishment on my shoulders? Right now, that Which really was... hit me quite hard. Yeah, you know, that this but she's is, making it all about her. Is... Yeah, yes, yeah. It was yeah. weird that wasn't it? She wasn't, and she wasn't thinking about her kids. I mean, these poor kids. And <laughs> it was, it was interesting at the end that you know Eddie got a job, and then Eileen didn't come back to the school, obviously. And I think she, I think she ends up getting a job as a typist or something. Ah, that's and, and and the the, the whole sort of thing about what she's writing about in the book, you know, Blyton is more or less saying. Well, that's where that class of girl should be. Now, that class of girl shouldn't really be at St. Clair's because she doesn't really belong here. She's not one of us. Um, yeah. So, therefore, she goes away and does a menial job somewhere. Not the same wrong being a typist, but you know what I mean? She's not allowed to be in the gang. I'm a bit older than you, but we are, uh, you know, of a certain age. And I would like to say 
we have got to a place where it is more comfortable for women definitely. in the workplace. Oh, definitely. But it's not a done deal, is it? It's no. not 100%. No. And have, have you found that frustrating along the way? Or well, does your natural cool. tendency to just stay the course, just has no, that stood you in good stead? I think I was lucky because when I joined TVAM as their correspondent, as their Scottish correspondent, I covered everything. And back then in the late, well, it was the early 80s, actually, it was 84, because it'll be 40 years I've been in Breakfast TV next year, which is scary. It just makes me think, oh, no. But it was um, it was really interesting because I had to do everything. Like I say, I had to do football, I had to do sport, I had to do politics, I had all of that. So I never had that thing of, you're the girl, you just do the diddy stuff, which I know a lot of colleagues of mine had. So I sympathised with that totally. But I do think it's always a mistake to try and be in with whoever the regime happens to be. I mean, I've had so many regime changes. I just kind of do the job and get on with it. And I don't go into cliques or anything because it's, it's pointless. And it's exhausting. Um, so I just think, go in, do your job, do it as w- the best to your ability. Also, though, don't pull the ladder up. You know, I mean, I think, and you're exactly the same, you have got so much experience that you've amassed over the years, all of the different things that you've done and all of your life experiences as well. You've got to pass it on. There's no, what's the point otherwise? You know, you have to pass it on and you have to pass it on in a really positive way and help people. Otherwise, it's it's crazy because that's the whole point of amassing knowledge is to make sure that everybody benefits from that or if they want to. I mean, you're not going to foist it upon them, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing. And I, and I feel that now is a real privilege for me because most of, in fact, all of my team are, gosh, they're far younger than I am. And they keep me young. They do. They keep me young. I'd like to think that I give them the benefit of my wisdom. I don't think I do. <laughs> but, but they certainly give me loads back because they keep me young. They keep me informed. They keep me excited. They keep me, you know, interested in things. And that's great. You know, it's, it just works really well. People often ask me what my regular London pub is, but that assumes there's a pub I can easily return to. So please stop asking that. London Pub Reviews, written by Paul Ewan and featuring Tim Key. A hat-trick podcast. Did you save my seat? Why? I'm at a completely different pub now, with different seats. Catch up. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Drinking with dignity. Yes, sir. Yes, madam. That's me all over. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All the girls boast about their parents all the time, usually in a nice way, you know, that mm. they are kind or lovely. 
But Angela obviously boasts big time about her parents because they have several cars and which big one they're going to turn up in and her mother will look beautiful. And then one of the girls, Pauline, is it? Pauline, yeah. Yes, um, Pauline, yes. Says her mother is absolutely lovely. And then this, and I have to read this because it's just so awful. When, this, when the mother finally arrives at school, um, she is actually a plain, tired-looking woman, almost old. <laughs> And all the girls are saying, oh, my goodness, you know, that's not the mother she was describing to us. And I thought, mm. did we really think about our parents like that? Did we? I thought they were all wrong, frankly. So. I know. Everybody. Except your mother. <laughs> Except my mum, who, who was a baby when she'd be. But I, I found the character of Pauline really tragic because yes. she was desperately trying to fit in. She was one of the new girls. And there's Angela with all this money that she's got. She's beautiful. And she's this and that. And, you know, and everybody's aspiring to be her and wanting to be her friend. And then there's Pauline who has committed the terrible sin of having straight dark hair and not being all that pretty. And she ends up like, that's the thing that Angela gives everybody lavish gifts and Pauline's trying to keep up with them. And, you know, there's something obviously not quite the thing about Pauline. You know that something's not quite right. We find out that she tells her mother not to come to half term because she's ashamed of her mother. And her mother obviously comes to the school when Pauline's there. Well, she breaks her legs, so her mum comes because um, they send for her. And, and people think, oh, she must be one of the maids. She must be one of the cleaners. And it's like, it's just dreadful. It's absolutely appalling. It, it really is that you that, that wee girl would be ashamed of her mum that's worked so hard to pay for her to be at that school. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? I, lo- I love the fact, though, that it made me laugh aloud, that when she breaks her leg, which she breaks by falling off the wall bars, which I really sympathise because I hated, well, I hated the wall bars. Myself. I hated the wall bars. I, me too. And that bit where you had to climb up them and then no. turn round to face the room. Oh, it's horrible. horrible. No. Obviously, Pauline had exactly the same experience because she fell off, breaks her leg, and the doctor says, <laughs> she's broken her leg, clean break, nothing to worry about. That's <laughs> yeah, the doctor. Stop the nonsense, clean break, nothing to worry about. Stick to the sanatorium. <laughs> Honestly, I did laugh aloud. I thought, oh, how wonderful to be to be a child reading that and think, yeah, that's all that is. It's fine. Are you breaking your leg up? It's no fine. Anyway, who gave what? Because all the presents they give, again, it's just wonderful, aren't they? One, one of them gives a magnificent blotter. You yes, know, or, or that's Pauline, with her initials yes. on. I thought, do they arrive at school with all this stuff? I mean, honestly, I, didn't, I wouldn't have thought that at the time, so I must not get carried that's away true. here. That's true. Where did they get those <laughs> presents? You're right. <laughs> When we come to the end of the book and Eileen's perfidy is revealed and Alison, who's the one who has passions on somebody every single term and has a passion on Angela. And then Eileen writes to her later to say, don't worry, it wasn't your fault, which is you can almost feel that Amy Blyton needs Alison to be in the next book. You know, she's going to write yes. the next book. She yes. doesn't want to lose too many characters. She's already lost one. You know, mm-hmm. and hopefully, I don't know, I didn't read the next two books, but I hope that Angela, having learned her lesson, becomes a nicer character. I think she does. I think she does. Primarily, actually, I think she does. Um, she does become much, much better and she becomes accepted. She adheres to the code of the school. Um, and yeah, I think so. Now and again, she has to be taken down a peg or two, because that's the other thing that they do. Don't go above your station, or you'll be taken down a peg or two. <laughs> it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, because also, um, Enid Blyton herself, you know, who who did have this quite quite a complicated life story, mm. um, but was adamant that mothers should not go out to work. She prided yes. herself on the fact that she had a job that kept her at home, you know, mm. because she felt that was proper mothering. 
However, as a little sidebar to that, of course, first of all, she cannot have been terribly present in writing 50 books a year. No, absolutely also, not. even if she was, she sent both her daughters to boarding school. <laughs> I know. So she didn't even do much parenting anyway. So she wasn't, you know, I mean, they, they were away. They were off. The, and that's again, you know, like I was talking to you earlier on, I found that bizarre. I mean, I know now, you know, I know now that there's the Harry Potter thing and, you know, there's a lot of kids that actually do want to go. And there was a little bit of me that wanted to go to that school. Uh, you know, there definitely was because of the, they had a pool, a swimming pool at the school. I mean, that was just like unheard of luxury. And they could go for a midnight swim. Midnight swims with yeah. lashings of ginger beer and, and, and what were those paste sandwiches again, which I didn't know what paste was. I have to go and find out. But it's just you like... don't have to know that, really. I think it's something that can just remain where it was <laughs> in the 50s. Does. It transpires that they're actually only up at about half 11. <laughs> I know. It never, it's not a rave, is it? Let's be honest. It's not. You know, paste sandwiches and ginger beer. Do not a rave make. And you imagine 16 year olds now, if you said to them, right, you're going to a party. And uh, my 16 year old self, of, uh, you know, yeah. sandwiches curled at the end and some ginger beer. <laughs> you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> That's going to happen. Let's try it on the, ne- <laughs> on the nearest one. But what about, what about the, the idea of, of bringing the books up to date? I just think with, with those kind of books, I think you need to have the snobbishness in there so that you can tell what it was like. My, my thing with redoing stuff, and, and it happens with TV shows as well. I mean, I was just watching that about the Brinks Matt drama a bit called Gold, and mm. they had a woman um, very senior position in there in the special branch, you know, the flying squad at that time, and that just wouldn't have happened. She would have been making the tea and getting her bum felt, sadly. That, that's the reality of it. And I think sometimes when you change things, if you don't have the context that, that at our age that we would know that that's actually not strictly true, that's what we were striving for, I think it sort of, it sort of in a way demeans the, the fight. That, that women have had in particular um, and, and the fight that we've had, you know, to to stop this kind of snobbery and to stop this kind of, I mean, blatant racism that we saw in Enid Blyton books, which even as a kid, I knew there was something not right about it, but it takes you now to look back. So if you change it, it's like that never happened. And I don't think that's a particularly good idea. I think it's like the, the whole Roald Dahl thing. It was too late for me and too early for my daughter in a way, although obviously I'm very, very aware of all of his, his work. But if you take away all of the um, questionable content, it's not. I don't think it's a good thing because I think you have to realise how far we've come and how far we've still to go. Um, and, and, and I think you do need to have these very difficult conversations. And you can have these conversations with your kids as well. It's quite a good thing. You know, it she, is. I think we want to it see is. that we've made progress, you know, that we have made progress, and I think that's important. I wouldn't imagine that many young people, if any, are reading Enid Blyton now. I, I'd be astounded if they were. You know, I think it is more like, um, for me, it's nostalgia, you know, looking back to that. I'm looking back on it with clearer eyes, obviously, and, and, and quite, not, not so much shocked by the, the Claudine at St. Clair's. I mean, there's some things in there that are really dodgy, um, but it's not as bad as a hell of a lot of the other things that she wrote. Um, but you can look back on it like that. But I don't think kids kids are reading that now. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I would like to think, I'd like to think no, because I think we've moved on. We've just moved on. But as you say, a great storyteller. I think you just leave it in the past where it, <laughs> where it absolutely belongs. And, and now and again, if you did want to dip into that, and, and hopefully you would look at it and be shocked and at the same time, exactly my reaction and your reaction, barely laugh at the ludicrousness of it. <laughs> I 
and how silly it was and how snobbish. I mean, the snobbery is just, you know, it's, it's, it is astonishing. But but the, the thing that, re- that really did kind of at the end, um, I suppose, make a little bit of sense and, and, and she redeemed herself a bit was that the code does include the fact that Ifty's the same. Yes. But yes. I think with her, some are more the same than others. It's the kind of, you know, it's yeah. the kind of animal farm thing, isn't it? <laughs> All little girls at school are equal, but some are more equal than others. And if your name's Eileen, you're stuffed. <laughs> it's like, I think we ain't typist. The perfect summary. Did, did your daughter read them? No, not really. Um, no, she was kind of, she was kind of uh, just about, she was like me. She, she she reads all the time. She's like me. She was kind of Harry Potter-ish. Was just coming to the Harry, the whole kind of Harry Potter thing. Um, and then she started reading what I would call sort of teen books, you know, a lot of teen books and then a lot of my stuff, a lot of my stuff as well. So she read like baby books when she was wee, obviously. Um, that was the first present I ever got or was a, I always remember it. It was a wee book with a duck on it, but it was like you could read it in the bath. It was, you know, those ones. Do you remember them? And then do you remember the ones, the, the, the rag books she used to get and they were kind of like um, scalloped at the edges and there were wee rag books that used to, I loved all that. It was great, absolutely brilliant. But no, I think I do think Enid is in the past, but it was a joy to read that again in many ways for so many reasons. It brought back so many memories, um, good ones, uh, as, as well as sort of like, goodness me, uh, very, very, very strange. And like I say, reading is amazing. And, and I was so lucky to have a library. Just so lucky to have a library. I don't know what I would have done without it. I really don't. Because, you know, all it was just like walking in. I love the smell, the smell of the library and walking in and all these fantastic books. And I'm, you know, and I, and I thought to myself, I'm never going to have time to read these all, all of these books. And that was just in one library in one wee place. Ah, oh, it's amazing. And although, although you didn't go to university, I'm, I'm deeply envious of the fact that you've got sort of rectorships of universities. Oh, do you know, that was the well bestest gelled. thing. The bestest thing. I, I was rector of Dundee University. And it's a brilliant tradition when you become rector. And it was started by the Queen Mother that the rugby team drag you in a, in a sort of little pranny coach thing, you know, <laughs> ramshackle thing. But they drag you around the city and you have to have a drink in every bar. Hurrah! So the <laughs> Queen Mother started that? Queen Mother started that. So I was the second female rector and I was dragged around the streets of Dundee by the female rugby club and we had a blast. It was fantastic. I loved it because I felt as if I got university life without doing any work. And then they gave me an honorary degree. You certainly got Freshers' Week. As I understand, <laughs> I didn't go to university either, but as I understand it, that's pretty much Freshers' Week. <laughs> that, that, yeah, it was, it was, shall we just say it was a blur? <laughs> it was a wee blur. <laughs> we'll leave it to that. <laughs> I am very jealous of that. And also, yeah. also that you. What, what's your connection with Black Watch? Yeah, I was That's... the honorary colonel of the Black Watch cadets. <sighs> that was amazing. Do you know that big burly hairy man had to salute me? Which is ridiculous. But as as I said to him, I said, "Oh, please don't." You know, I would sort of give them, give them a cuddle. Please don't salute me. This is, I'm very embarrassed. And they go, "No, we're not saluting you. We're saluting the badge that you're representing." So then that made me feel a little bit better. But that was that was great fun. But you yeah. know, the, the the maddest thing about that was I was asked to um, well, not set off. I don't know what the I don't know what you would call. Yes, yeah, set off. I guess um, the one o'clock gun in Edinburgh. And the man said, "Look, I'm going to say um, five, four, three, two, one, fire." And then you're going to do this at one o'clock and it's all going to be fantastic. And I was like, yeah, fine, no problem at all. Five, four, well, he said, 
five and I thought he said fire so I pressed the button <laughs> and it's the first time in the history of the one o'clock gun in Edinburgh because you know it goes off at one o'clock right but it went off slightly earlier that day all down to me and um, they were just like just looking at me and shaking their heads I just say, never get a civilian to do a job like that give, it to, the army. give it to the army that to do is. it I'm very struck by the fact that you no, obviously you, you didn't go to university me too and that you have retain that that love of learning to go back to the book the girls don't do an awful lot of that do they that doesn't sing out from the pages gosh you're absolutely right nobody does any studying they're too busy letting off stink bombs and having midnight snacks and and arguing with one another and and sneaking out to see the brothers and and stealing you nobody does any work Nobody does any work at St. Clair's. It's outrageous. What are those women going to do? What are those young girls going to do when they leave school? I suppose they have to, as Enid Blyton would say, they have to get married and stay at home and have babies because that's all you do if you're a girl. But with their code of honour intact. Code of honour intact. I, I wasn't sure whether to do that one or whether to do a Just William, but I'm glad we did that because there's a lot in there, I'm, wasn't there? Was a lot I'm really back. glad we did it because yeah. I haven't, obviously, haven't read Ina Blanton since I was a child. No, no, no. And I hadn't read, I, you know, I was in Mallory Towers, but I I would not be able to quote you any of it. You know, the, yeah. I think that's the brilliant thing about her writing, actually, is that her writing doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. And just... for an author, that in a way, that's what you want. You know, <laughs> you want people to go, I loved your book, but they don't want to pick up the fine tune yeah, of but how you got there. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just I just loved your book. You know, I love those characters. And yeah, yeah, place of safety, actually, isn't it? Yeah. The whole of it is a place of safety. (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Janet. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Joyful. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at TwiceUponAPod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton and Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast.